0: Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, microprivate equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at A.E. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small company today and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorhandbook.com. My guests on this episode are Tom Klein and Roland Lassard. Tom and Roland launched a partnered search after running a background screening business together and acquired a language service business focused on intellectual property in 2016, which they sold last year in 2021. In both companies, growth through acquisition was a core to their playbook, and we spend a ton of time diving into best practices and things to avoid in doing so. This is one of the best episodes of the podcast for understanding M&A synergies and change management. And if any of these topics apply to your business, you'll want to tune in. This conversation covers all things M&A, shifting teams, understanding culture and structure, effective leadership, and integrations with new companies and teams. We got on such a roll near the end that I entirely skipped my closing questions to make room for more discussion, and I think it paid off. And I hope by the end of this longer-than-usual episode, you're in agreement. Enjoy. This episode is the third in a new six-episode series of Trilogy Search Partners, where we share stories and insights from talented entrepreneurs and investors from around the traditional search fund community. To introduce the guest of our third episode, I'm joined by Mitch Cohen, a partner at Trilogy, to introduce today's guests, Tom Klein and Roland Lassard. Mitch, thanks for setting the stage for the episode today. Tom and Roland are, of course, investments of Trilogy, and so you've spent a lot of time with them. I would love to hear the, kind of your version of an intro to them and setting the stage for the episode ahead.
1: That's no, great. Thanks, Alex. As you guys will hear in this episode, um, Tom and Roland bring a lot of great experience to the search fund community. They've been through the entire cycle of finding the company, managing it terrifically, quite candidly, and then exiting as they did a a year or so ago. So they'll bring some pretty exciting insights to how they did a pretty unusual search, much more targeted than what we typically see. And then a lot of the strategy that they're gonna talk about today is gonna be some of the M&A strategy that they did. Hopefully they'll be able to show you how purposeful and intentional they've been and I think one of my big takeaways is, is that they didn't want to rush anything, that they're going to show you that you can be very logical and thoughtful about this stuff. So, you know, as a board member, I was fortunate enough to be on the board of the company. And I think, to be honest, I probably learned as much from them as they may have learned from me. So I'm excited that you guys are going to get a chance to hear what they have to say.
0: Yeah, it was a great episode. Looking forward to sharing it.
1: Thanks. Yeah, let's jump into them.
0: To learn more about Trilogy Search Partners, please reach out via their website at trilogy-search.com. I also want to thank our other three sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood In Strong, and Oberly Risk Strategies. And now to our episode with Tom and Roland. I've been looking forward to this ever since Aaron and Scott introduced us all. So it's been it's been fun to get to know you guys over email a little bit and excited to chat with you in person or over the over the video here unfortunately in person one day maybe i'll make a trip to new york here pretty soon and we get to meet for coffee or something but thanks for joining this has been fun i'd love to hear a little bit about just kind of your backgrounds how you got into search the company you you ran and all the acquisitions you did and now you've sold so i would love to hear all about that whole timeline
2: yeah i can i can start us out so i'm i'm tom klein and um met my partner roland a little over a decade ago i i started my career after school out in Asia with Princeton in Asia. I spent a year out in Thailand and came back and did five years in, in finance and ba- banking. And then um, after business school, spent the last 12 years in, in what Roland and I like to call unsexy business services. So I actually met Roland in a background screening business right when I got out of business school. We were stuck in the same office together with with a poor little dividing wall and neither of us have a sense for how to use our voices inside. And so that led to some partnership and some confrontation in that office, but mostly partnership by the end. And after that background screening business sold five or six years later, we were thinking up and drumming up ideas of where we would go next and, and, and what we would do, and it was highly appealing to us to be able to run a business, and the vehicle to be able to run a business in the form of a search fund ended up being highly appealing to us. Being able to, you know, buy a business that was a mid-sized business and not, you know, startupy was appealing. The ability to be all in on one business was super attractive to us and the ability to go, go long on the equity of a business rather than, you know, focusing on uh, short-term compensation was something that was very appealing to us. And so we, we spent what Roland, 18 months searching for a business here in the U S had a kind of a set of key uh, metrics and matrices that we were focused on around the characteristics of the business we wanted, and one of those actually was that it was an unsexy business service. I'll, I'll turn it over to Roland to tell how we ended up in language translations because that's a pretty good story.
3: My name is Roland Massard. As Tom introduced me, I've been uh, friends, colleagues, and I guess you could say married for about 12 years. And so, again, meeting back in, in, uh, in the late early 2000s, after the old background screening business sharing the out-of-office. You know, Tom and I kind of came from different avenues, but found ourselves in the same way. My background, my BSMS and stuff is more of an engineering background, consulting background, Six Sigma, all that fun stuff. And so, as Tom alluded to, after, after leaving the background screening company and, and setting up our own search fund for all the reasons Tom articulated so clearly, we found ourselves drawn to this, to this translation language services industry with a focus on intellectual property. And, when when looking for a business, one of the things we always try to espouse, folks, is to like make a personal connection. And so the personal connection we had was we had an intern that that also spoke many languages and and helped us look at, at this language services space. And the, the funny story was it is in the middle of searching, being in the foxhole, I would say, and and looking for a business, basically being unemployed, my wife decided to do a full remodel on our kitchen which is not something anyone would enjoy while their income is greatly diminished. But so here we are again, ready to redo our kitchen. And she fell in love with some dishwasher and dishwashers to me were something basic to clean, to clean the dishes. And they were a few hundred bucks. I didn't know they needed to be Wi-Fi and so many decibels for silence and all this other stuff, Alex. And so one day I got home and the dishwasher I said, we're not going to get is in my kitchen. And I said to my wife, well, I thought we weren't going to buy this. And I said, she's like, well, I'm saving money with it. And I said, well, how are you saving money? She said, well, Ron, you're gonna install it. And so I, I took that, I took that as, a, as a fun opportunity during my search fund to become HVAC person and deal with appliances. Long story short, as I'm pulling through this Bosch dishwasher, I'm looking at the MSDS sheet, I'm looking at the instruction manual, I go to the website, and I realize that everything, the IVR system, the phone, Everything has a dozen languages. Language is embedded within this product, and this is just one product of many. And so you start thinking about translations as this ancillary thing that's not connected to many things, and you think about just, okay, how do I have my website in two languages? No, it's much deeper than that. And so in today's globalized society, foreign language, if you want to sell internationally, is embedded within every product and every organization. And so that Became a realization for Tom and I that it's a must-have service, which is which is one of our key drivers in in why we do what we do in the business that we look at. And how do you find a business that is must-have, they, which helps obviously during slow times and recessionary times and so forth? But that is how we started finding translations, and then from that we found a wonderful company in New York City, which was which was nice considering that we we're all from the area. And being geographically agnostic, we kind of got a little bit lucky on that one.
2: Yeah, Alex, we were we were ready to move anywhere. That was part of the handshake agreement was we were willing to move to Paducah, Kentucky, where we actually did look at a business. We were willing to move to Wisconsin or Arizona or California. It just so happened we we ended up in New York City. But one of the great parts of the language services industry, which, you know, at the time was a thirty billion dollar global industry, maybe today it's now fifty which is remarkable and most, would surprise most people to be of that size. But one of the greatest characteristics of it is its fragmentation, which is another key attribute we look for. And the number of targets, as you know well, probably, Alex, is a critical criterion to be able to have a successful search, especially if you're running an industry niche-focused search where you're really going deep on one specific you know, sub-industry, uh, within an industry, having the, the right number of targets, a, a, a high volume number of targets really allows you to spend more time in that industry. There's a, a knowledge snowball effect where when you're on your, you know, seventh or eighth conversation with an owner in that industry, you sound remarkably sophisticated. And, you know, it, it allows you to really, you know, get a number of at-bats, far more higher number of at-bats Uh, to ultimately hopefully find success and, and, and close on a deal. So, you know, in language services, you know, chasing 10 to 30 million of revenue and, you know, say three to five of EBITDA, you know, we had 150 or even 200 targets, which was, we we used to like to say, Roland, I think there better be a minimum of 50 or 75 targets. And, And so language services was one of its great attributes was, you know, having this many possible targets. Once we decided we liked the industry and its characteristics.
3: And Tom, now that we're, now, now that we're getting Alex into the search fund space and he'll be raising his own search fund shortly, I think one of the things that, that was, that's kind of stands out about everything Tom just you know, conveyed around having 50 or 100 targets, when we raised our fund and began really searching in 2016, Having a very centric industry-focused search was kind of an kind of an outlier. And so Tom and I, when we say 500 targets, most of the folks back then were doing, I would say, more of a shotgun approach and they would have thousands, but they'd be across multiple different industries with no clear path. And so, you know, we took a very different approach to be a very industry-centric kind of search, where as Tom or, or, you know, communicated, we, we jump on calls as owners. And we would know their best friends, their other colleagues or competitors, and you'd have a very, you know, productive conversation where the folks, uh, folks on the other side of the call, really believed you've been in the space and not just for a month or two, but for years. Because when you're working 50, 60, 70 hours a week, but you're actually not spending time with upset employees or upset clients, and you're spending time just learning and, and really understanding the market, it, it's an amazing, it's an amazing advantage that you don't get to do in, in everyday work life. And so it was. You really become an expert quickly if you really spend all your time focusing on one space and really networking out and kind of spidering out to the different folks uh, that have had an impact in the industry.
0: Yeah, it's pretty amazing, especially when I've talked with searchers who had, you know, hundreds of companies in their industry in their own region. And then another search group that has eight total companies like nationwide in their industry. Like it's that specific. So with, you, know, you said 150-ish companies or so within... Within that industry, like how many do you think you talked with? Do you think you talked with all of them at some point?
2: We probably communicated with all of them, but based on the correspondence, we were letter writers, you know, personal letters to folks. And the way we wrote those letters, I think, had a huge impact on the hit rates. We would get, you know, 50% response, some sort of response from 50% of them. And within the response rates, about half were willing to. To get on a call, so I would I would submit we 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 spoke with call it you know, thirty or forty companies, within that space, but then you know nicely got told no for a variety of reasons by another another thirty or forty, which is fine. All you know sometimes all you want is a no because you want an answer. What's worse is no response, right? Hey, it's okay. Your son's in the business, or hey, you know I've I've got another good ten years in this to to build and it's my life's work, and I'm only 50 myself and want to run it and so just getting an answer alex including a no we learned the value of getting a no cross them off the list you know the other thing I'd say is we don't want to act like uh, translations was our first industry we we burnt through another 20 industries some less attractive some equally attractive but for a variety of reasons you know those fizzled out they weren't what we thought they were they ended up with too few targets or we exhausted the targets and and couldn't get couldn't get something moving into sort of diligence or, or a letter of intent. So we we certainly had our share of of crossed off industries that we still like today. But one of one of the greatest fears was that we would run out of industries. So I can remember well, Alex Roland would pester me for how you know how many hey how many you got left how many good industry ideas do you have left? And so we were always telling each other we had to keep adding ideas to the list because we didn't want to run out of quote, good industries.
3: And, you know, and Tom, with that, I think one of the things that, you know, whenever we talk to prospective searchers or folks that are just getting going or getting engaged in Tom and I like to, to kind of help guide and, and mentor and support different sets of folks, you know, the, the one question they always ask was, you know, the company we bought in AKA translation space, was that one of your original four or five on your PVM? And the answer is always no. And so, you know, to all the folks listening, don't get scared when you burn through your first PBM ones and none of them work out, because that's probably more the norm than anything else. And, and, as, and as Tom mentioned, I think really thinking about that sales funnel and, 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 and having a good response rate is more important than having more opportunities on top that, that mean nothing. And so I'd rather have a 50% response rate on 100 targets that are tailored, that we understand that are the right size then a 3% response rate on 500 targets that we know nothing about. And so I think it's just an important concept. And then being letter writers, the one joke I would say is that besides Tom and my wife, the only person I knew best was the postmaster at the local uh, post office, walking in to buy 100 stamps every single month. It was always an interesting way to spend my time and my money.
0: <laughs> yeah, certainly. Let's talk about the company you bought then. So what company did you buy? How large was it? What kind of shape was it in when you acquired it? And then... From there, what was your growth plan for it?
2: Well, I can start and and roll and finish that. So we bought a company named Morningside Translations, which was in New York, based in New York City, but with a bunch of offices around the U.S. and and, and also overseas in in the U.K. and Germany and Israel. Company had about 130 employees when we bought it and was doing something near 30 million of revenue at the time. And the company provides intellectual property translation and filing services to corporations and law firms. So they are providing the service of translating patents and then filing them around the world. And and with that comes a fair amount of regulatory regulatory complexity, I should say, and local patent office knowledge around the world. If you think about a a company spending uh, half a billion or a billion dollars on important R&D over five or 10 years and coming up with one or 10 or 50 patents from that work. Companies want to go secure those rights overseas for when they ultimately commercialize. And so companies may want to secure rights in two countries, but maybe a 100. And each time they do that, assuming the local patent office language is not English, like in Australia or Canada, You've generally got to translate the patents, and you better get it right because there's there's no margin for error in terms of you know securing the proper rights to your to your innovation. So that that was the business, and and I'll let Roland finish that.
3: Yeah, I'll kind of co- share a little color on the state of the business. And so, I guess another thing for all the folks listening is that all companies have hair, all companies have words, and so does the market. Does the the dynamics, the people, the industry, the sub-niche, does that outweigh some of that hair and some of in some of that, some of those warts? And from our perspective, it did. And so I would say the business was very entrepreneurial. And so the founder was was the epitome of an entrepreneur like profit second, just let's just grow, let's figure it out afterwards, you know, didn't, didn't have an HR department. The finance department didn't do a budget. <laughs> I don't know what they really did besides AR and AP. And so the state of the business was, was a business that was growing very, very fast, but the infrastructure of the business was starting to crumble. And so if you can think about a building with a foundation and every year adding a new floor, the building's getting taller and taller. It's going from five million to ten million to fifteen to thirty. However, that foundation was built on a five million dollar infrastructure. And so it was starting to crumble. And so that was something that Tom and I did notice and understood quite clearly. I and mean, we'll speak a little more about that as far as getting in early and really understanding the management team and the folks that are part of it. And so we knew where the work had to be. How do we sustain the growth in this, in the of the organization while creating structure and helping them move and cross that chasm from a small business to a medium-sized business? And so that was kind of the challenge at hand that we understood walking in based on how the founder before us ran the business. You know, again, great guy, just, just lack of structure from, from a back office and a front office perspective. And so that was kind of the state of the union of Morningside when
0: we acquired. it. So when you talk about the systems were built for a $5 million company, but now it's 30, where did you feel those crumbling systems the most? Like where was the most pain felt? Well, that's a,
3: that's a great question, but I would say, I would say forget systems, I would talk about people. And so, you know, in the history of the world, you could look at very, very few people that have ran a $5 million startup all the way to a billion-dollar company because the skill sets are generally different for someone growing a, a venture from scratch versus someone starting to scale a medium-sized business versus someone with a large Fortune 500 company, which is just a, also a very different piece in itself. And so I think Tom and I would say, obviously, we can go into systems, whether it's a CRM, whether it's an, whether it's the IT system, or whether it's a lack of software development at all. But I, I would say that we the key would be on the, first and foremost, are the right people here with the right skill sets to scale versus start something from a garage. And so that is the area that we had to focus on first, Alex, was do we have the right people in the right seats on the right bus? You know, we're heading in the right direction. So, you know, we kind of, what we always said was we kind of had the business, we kind of did like old blood and new blood. So even our executive committee was kind of 50-50 of old legacy leadership and then new leaders that we brought in Where we we kept the matriarch of the business, we kept the you know sales guru of the business, but we brought in finance leader from our our past life that you know did a lot of work in M and A with us historically, and then our head of operations was actually someone that we met during our search process. And what, as Tom mentioned earlier, kind of like connecting and networking, in, I met a gentleman uh, who was very savvy and kind of worked for the largest player in the space. And we kind of poached him to when we closed, he was working with us about a month and a half later. And so we kind of really kind of helped offset that team with greater, bigger business thinking, but while still keeping the spirit and the entrepreneurial gusto of the original business. And so, kind of, how do we kind of blend those two together where we move away from the reactionary way of the business when you're a small company and move to a more proactive way? But we, we don't want to become bureaucratic, we want to keep the entrepreneurial spirit. And so, that was a challenge that Tom and I faced from the onset.
2: We were also missing significant numbers of departments, Alex. So I mean, we added five new groups within the first three months, more shifting roles and responsibilities. I'm not talking about hiring. we did, we were hiring for sure, but we were shifting roles and responsibilities and making them clear and precise. I mean, people, it was so entrepreneurial that people were, first of all, everyone was in sales. So everyone was allowed to sell um, just as an example, literally everyone you know you had your technologist you know doing new sales calls secondly, Roland mentioned you know departments that you would expect at twenty or thirty million of revenue to exist and one hundred thirty employees didn't so there was no HR department we didn't have a, a technology development shop we didn't have a a product department we had not yet uh, Developed account management, an account management function. So there were were significant departments to set up. And additionally, there were were issues around the world we needed to deal with. The existing departments that did exist generally did not exist globally. Meaning, you know, for example, an operations group in the US was doing different stuff than folks in the UK or Israel. So, So so making departments global and one company. For those departments that did exist was another critical kind of people and organizational factor. So I, I think our employees re- received maybe they were they thought they, they they were wondering when it was never gonna end. They received 10 emails titled organizational changes within the first three months. We we tried to be open and explain why we were doing things, but it felt like every two weeks they would get a organizational announcement PDF for the first three months, maybe ten times.
3: And I think after, that's one key point Tom said, I think we should really, people to really think about, and it goes back to MA and and finding the gems. And so as Tom alluded to, one of our mantras was like, how do we do more of the same, right? So people say, do more with less, like how do you do more of the same? So how do you keep your same headcount, but do more? How do you grow into it? And so when you had, we had offices all over the world and they were, run, they were still run like their own little standalone business. And so when you were able to merge these, these, again, there's like, there's no walls in today's global world. When you know that kind of operations is one operation group, you automatically gain efficiencies right there. And right. And so that's where you're able to repurpose some of these people into different roles. And so, you know, the mistake of just going out and hiring everybody to backlog in your org is the most important part of your first year by far, but how can, how do you reuse folks in different aspects? And so like Tom mentioned, right, our product group, our product group was, and was up being four or five folks strong. Every single person was already there and we were able to repurpose some solid folks. And so we did that even in account management a lot, I mean, with, with some of the sales folks. So how are we able to build out these functions without, again, we had to hire some folks, but like how, how could you build out functions without having to continually, in, you know, increase your OPEX? And so those are things that we spent a lot of time thinking about. I and mean, you can do that through scale and efficiency.
2: By and large, I mean, people were happy. I think we certainly lost some people who felt that the, sort of blank carte blanche entrepreneurial element of the business was gone. But guess what? That's what happens when you have a 30 million revenue business. So we lost some people, you know, some of whom we missed, some who we didn't, but by and large, folks that stayed, I think appreciated the clarity that had been missing around their roles and responsibilities and the identity and mission of their department. So it gave them marching orders. It wasn't to micromanage, but it gave, it set the table for what they were supposed to be focused on and, and why, and then who around, who around them was going to be on their team and, and where we were going. So it, it was a lot in the first 90 days, but it was, it was absolutely critical work that set the stage for future success.
0: And how did you try to quickly get to speed with what each person was actually doing? Cause to, to figure out like where people should be placed, you have to figure out what they're doing to begin with. So, what sorts of tactics or strategies did you use to try to get to that understanding as quickly as possible so you can make those changes?
3: So I think I'll just jump in to start that one. But I, I think there's there was kind of like two main, two main answers there, Alex. I would say the first one, and we'll speak like this probably a little more when we talk about M&A. One of the secret sauces that Tom and I did, and whether it was a more insider or a prior life where we did, I don't know, another seven, bolt-on acquisitions together. Uh, so we've had, we have a strong history of doing deals together, is getting in early. And so, well before a close, we've met the management team not once, not twice, but several times. Private launches, private meetings, getting into the weeds of the company, spending time with the what we, what we like to coin figuring out the sergeants versus the officers are. And so, when when you spend time with folks and they open up and, and you listen, it's amazing what you could learn about the, what they're doing on an everyday basis. I think folks are sometimes get too enamored with like, this is the way we're going versus figuring out where they are, right? So it's like, how do you figure out your desired state if you don't know what your current state is? And so we spent a lot of time really listening and learning, even before we closed. And then again, as the the first few months went by, that's really where you have to like listen and learn. And, you know, one of the other mantra Tom and I live on is org metrics activities and kind of that order matters tremendously. And so, especially with smart, aggressive people, when they see a problem or they see an opportunity, an activity, the first inclination is to let's go fix this, fix that. And before, you know, it, you're running around with your head chopped off, fixing problem after problem, after problem. Instead, you should be figuring out first, who is my team? Are they in the right seats and what did they do? And so if you focus your efforts on org first, do we have the right people on the bus? And I said, do we have the driver, the backseat driver, the navigator, And then do we know where we are and do we know where we're going from more of a metrics and data perspective? It becomes much easier to understand activities and where we're going when you have the right people and you understand where you are and where you're going. So having a clear set of metrics really allows the CEO to fly at 15,000 feet versus going from 30 to 5 and back and forth all day. And usually when you do that, you're causing disruption. You're not actually benefiting the business long term you're having quick wins that don't, that don't have any longevity to them. And so I, I would say that's, that's again, part of, you know, what we'll call our secret sauce when when thinking about a business is getting in early and really spending time in in that order with you know, org metrics and then activities. And so that's, I could probably me be the best advice we could give.
2: And when we, just to add to that, when we talk about the sergeants, you know, these secondary and tertiary lieutenants who are, Absolutely critical to the business, but might not appear or unlikely, I should say, to appear in a management meeting. You've got to meet those people and you've got to meet them without the owners of the business or the CEO of the business. You've got to hear from them directly. And there's a time and a place for that. It's not early on, but it's somewhere midway through. And that's where you're going to get amazing insights on culture. That's where you're going to learn where the bodies are buried. That's where you're gonna learn everything you need to do for day one planning. You know, it's our strong belief that your first day and your first week owning a business are the most essential time period. It's your first impression, it's how you handle employee and customer anxiety. We may get into that but but these meetings that Roland mentioned with these sergeants are so important for how you prepare for day one and the meetings we had specifically in our search fund acquisition really got us two months head start on the work that we knew we had to begin planning for and the listening we knew we had to do because we realized there were gonna be a lot of changes likely in that first three months. So to get two months on the on the other side of the acquisition in terms of us knowing that this was going to be coming and, and beginning to kind of pave the landscape for that was critical to our success to, 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 to begin planning before acquisition else.
3: I mean, Alex, that's, that is a key. And we, you know, we spoke about this at a, at a few roundtables. but you know, you think about those old world war one movies with trench warfare, right. And that officer from West point standing up and just getting shot. Right. Meanwhile, everyone's following the dirty grungy Sergeant, right. And when they have a problem. So, so the, the question is, when the, an employee has a question or a challenge, who do they go see? That's the sergeant, right? And so like, they're generally not going to another EC member or maybe a vice president or something, someone that's, you know, a good employee of the company and has great strategic vision and so forth. But when there's a problem, who do they go see? When there's a question, who do they ask? And so if you can figure out who those people are, those are the people that are really like, spinning the wheels of the business. And if you can get them on your side and moving in the same direction, from from a change man perspective, you have all the power in the world, right? Because your easy members are going to follow you no matter what, because you're already tied in with them. You have you have very common goals. You've already done that. You've established that. But how do you get that next layer of management or, or wherever those folks may be to, be to be on your side? And once you do, you've then won the company over.
0: Let's talk about M&A because that's a big part of your growth story as well. I would love to hear just like a high-level overview of what kind of m and did you do? And then what was your thinking and philosophy on acquiring other companies as bolt-ons?
2: Yeah. So kind of stepping back when we were in the employment background screening business, which was the unsexy business we were in prior to patent translations, we bought seven bolt-on up acquisitions in about the same number of years. This is sort of 2010 to... to 2015 or maybe 2009 to 15. And that was in a similarly fragmented space with lots of, lots of employment, employment background screening companies in the call it, you know, 10 to 30 million revenue range. And so Roland and I were able to partner on all those deals and we kind of split things down the middle. I was in charge of um, finding those targets, building relationships with those targets, and then running all the diligence and getting the getting the deal across the finish line with with the buy-in of our leadership team and and key executives and of course Roland who was charged with integrating the business and so in some cases we had you know different incentives right if if I was being incentivized to 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 purchase the company and Roland was being incentivized on achieving the synergies You could imagine who was the maybe the bull or or the bear in terms of the forecasting. So we had to find that common ground, which was actually really helped us forge our our relationship and ultimately partnership outside of that. But you know, we were we were looking for background screening businesses, you know, that were that had good growth, that you know, had low customer concentration. We and then we were generally looking for businesses that you know, had some qualitative gem in them where there was something we were getting beyond a great customer base. So were we getting some great employees? Were we getting a new product or service that we could launch? Were we getting a new location that would benefit the company? And so I think that philosophy was one we took into patent translations and patent filing. You know, could we find pretty good growing businesses could we find businesses that were you know generally 5 to 10 to 15% of our size you know one of our golden rules of thumb is don't buy a business you know that's more than 50% of your size in fact you know you buy something 30% of your size it starts not necessarily feeling like a tuck in so could you find something 5 to 10% to 15% of your size that had some good growth where you know the customer base is pretty happy and is experiencing low churn and where we could find something additive to our product portfolio, to our employee base, to our you know geographic reach, Could we add one of those things in addition to you know hopefully getting a a deal at a good synergized pro forma multiple? Rowan, what else would you add? No,
3: I think I think Tom, I think you nail hit the nail on the head with how you articulated that. I would say that maybe the only thing I would add in there, and I think it, it became more. Um, a parent in the translation world is not deviating from your overall vision. And so, like in translation, there's a lot of different k- translation opportunities. Like again, going back to sub niches. And I think what served us really well was there was a huge plethora of acquisitions we could have done that were kind of nice and they were good from a from a synergy perspective, but they would have diluted the value that we created by being in regulated industries such as life science and intellectual property first and foremost. And so the and discipline, especially when you're deal hounds, to not go out and buy something just to buy something that w- that will create, you know, financial value, but might not create long-term strategic value. I think was a lesson that we had to keep reminding ourselves throughout the process. And it, it kind of connects to the gem conversation, but it's um, it maybe a little bit even higher up, really focusing on strategy and ensuring this company. Yeah, beyond growth, beyond customer concentration, all those pieces, does it fit our longer term vision of who we want to be, especially when one sits across multiple industries?
2: Right. That's a that's a great point. It's it's and I and I missed that, but it's basically, you know, ensuring you're buying, you know, something in your core business. There were lots of translation companies we could have bought that didn't do our core business of patent translation. And so it's easy to convince yourself, ah, this would be a nice tuck in when you're potentially fundamentally changing your identity. That was one of the things that we spent a lot of time on in the first 12 or 18 months. We had a lot of discussions and debate about who we wanted to be. We were a language translation company, but we were also a an IP patent services company. So ultimately with some 60% of our, and ultimately. 80% of our revenue coming from patent. We decided to really focus on on patent and IP, and and not on some smaller businesses that we had. Although we kept servicing them and growing those businesses, we took a clear you know pivot toward being an IP services company rather than being you know catch all translation company that did all sorts of translation. So that became important in Alex who we were targeting and what we were looking at we ended up doing two deals just to get to the other side of your question we ended up doing two deals in about 2 years the first year and a half we didn't do deals we were, we were internally focused but we ended up doing two deals one that was kind of a you know 5 million you know revenue tuck in especially focused on life sciences and that was over in israel and then we we ended up buying something that was you know more like 15 million of revenue but highly highly profitable with, a, with a, a really big gross margin and EBITDA margin, and that was our second acquisition. And the thing I would say about that one is, you know, we talked about our rule of, you know, 50 percent, not buying something, you know, more than 50 percent of your size. You know, this was actually, you know, 30 percent of our size. And even then, while we had a very successful integration, unbelievably successful, the bit, purchasing that business did force our core growth rate to slow at Morningside. And and you know, one of the unique factors in that acquisition was that our sales force had to take over a lot of new customer relationships in the acquired company due to some missing relationships at the business we bought due to departures of some employees, including well before we we purchased the business. So we had to do more of these customer transfers to our own salespeople from a relationship management standpoint than than expected. And so you know that's a lesson in when you buy start buying something that's even a third of your size on on bolt-ons, you know, you've got to be ready for the core business to end up absorbing a bunch of energy and bandwidth that then leaves current priorities less attended to. So I think that's a good lesson. And some of the stuff we knew, some we didn't going in, but as you start getting up there 30, 40, 50%, it's a whole different ball game than buying something that's five or 10% of your size and kind of, you know, impacts employees around the edges. When you start getting up there on 30%, you got many more people involved in the business and it's taking a lot more of their time.
3: And and so there was one thing Tom said there that I just wanted folks to gloss over when thinking about it. Obviously, as you said, some of our history, we did whatever seven deals prior together before we Morningside. So obviously well experienced working together and, and, and getting people to consider us deal hounds in some way. But as Tom mentioned, no deals in the first year and a half. Right. And that was on purpose. And that goes back to our earlier conversation of org structure first, learn your business first. And so I see a lot of folks want to jump right in and get into, into you know, acquiring companies especially when they have good opportunities. However, if you're, if your business is not structured, if you don't have all the right people in place, you don't have the right data, it makes that integration and that bandwidth suck from your core business exponential, right? Because you're trying to move them into your sausage making machine. And if your sausage making machine is in a spitting out baloney, like you got a problem and how are you going to create, you know, stake when your own business is not figured out yet. And so, you know, taking the time to really build out your team, build out your data, like such an important concept, because then it makes M&A integration so much easier because you have the right people. You understand your business. You have the data to fly at 15,000 feet and understand pros and cons and hits and misses without having to be in the dirty, dirty weeds. And so I think people like, again, be patient, build your organization out, learn your business before stepping in. And especially if you're buying a company, as Tom mentioned, a third or, or larger of your size, you really need to make sure you have your your organization in tip-top shape before you go back. Yeah, go there's nothing
2: that. more unattractive and demoralizing to target employees who've been acquired than a disorgan than a, than a parent company in disarray. And it's so obvious when it is in disarray. It's so clear and obvious, based on communications, based on you know how how attentive the employees of the of the, of the company that bought you can be to you how they describe their organization, the data they have. It's, it's so obvious how well run an organization is to a, to a company that's just been acquired. And so we, we sat there, we're like, we're not ready. We're not ready to acquire anyone. And that, you know, annoyed some people who had heard we were going to come in and be all this exciting MA. And some of our executive leaders a year in, were I remember a little annoyed that we hadn't done some deals because they knew that, doing the deals was gonna help scale the company. They also knew that it was good for economics in the business, that, that we um, could really go and had, had a track record of, of achieving synergies in a way that made the deals fairly lucrative. And so we eventually got there, but, but people were wondering where the heck are the acquisitions?
0: So we've kind of been dancing around a few of them or, or describing a few of them directly. I would love to hear if some more of the kind of do's and don'ts of good tuck in acquisitions, especially since you had so much practice beforehand before getting the language business. I would love to hear some of the best practices and then things to avoid that you've learned over your, over your careers.
3: All right. I guess I would jump in was maybe start with maybe two, you know, the best practices we'll do that first and kind of then we'll dive into don'ts. It's always nice to be positive first, right? Alex. Yeah, um, and so and so I think one of the first, one I would say, and we, we definitely danced around it quite a bit already is get in early. And so founders and owners, again, they're, they're, they're going to have trepidation, but like you can't allow them to push off manager meetings and getting to know the employees until the last minute, that's recipe for disaster. And so getting in early, you know, creating bonds with the key leaders, you know, that's how you really learn the business and that's how you forward relationships. So your first month or two, you're not like this new guy walking in. You've already created friendships. You've already created bonds. So getting in early and getting that access to people should be a non-starter for folks. And then again, a lot of owners feel uncomfortable. It's you know it's a touchy topic, but it's a topic you can't be you have to be relentless on. It's not an option. And if if it, to me it's a red flag. If the owner if after all these comforting conversations getting to know people, if they still don't let you meet folks, then there's a red flag there. Because they're hiding something possibly, and not to be nefarious, but like there's something going on that that they that you need to explore. And so getting in early will be the first and foremost thing I would say from an upfront process that 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 stands out. And to me, and we'll talk later about it when it comes M and A, but like getting prepared for day one uh, would be the other one I would bring up. And so you got one shot at a first impression. And so Tom was alluding to this earlier around having a disorganized business as an acquirer like you have one shot to make a first impression. And so the anxiety for the acquired business is at an all time high. And so if you, if you have two choices, you can either reduce that anxiety or you can add to it. And if you add to it, your chance of success go down 50%. If you make people comfortable and, and you reduce anxiety, your probability for success goes up 50%. And so really spending time overdoing day one is not, is not, you can't not overdo day one, right? So that's a better way to say. And so I would say those are the two things that probably stand out to me, Tom, and I guess I pass the mic.
2: Yeah, well, i would just add to that on, on that last one. That doesn't mean you're making any, any false promises or saying things you can't bring to bear. But what you are being is being real. You're talking to all the employees. You're making sure you have breakouts with all departments. You're setting a vision, setting a, at least a high-level strategy. And you are really communicating, and especially where you can make promises, like that we did at Morningside that everyone was going to keep their jobs. If you can say that, well, then say it, and there were other similar assurances that we were able to give knowing our strategy that are really important to say and repeat, and not just say but then email after and and there's a whole uh, methodology that we we deploy to that. The other things I would add on kind of You know, stuff people, you know, should do is they should do customer calls. Customer calls are not just important doing them at the 11th hour, and they always happen, you know, two days or a week or two before a deal happens. They're important even mentioning them midway through the process to an owner, because when you describe them as a requirement, you naturally start getting much better disclosure around unstable customer relationships or looming churn, looming customer churn. So certainly the calls themselves are a final critical check on your assumptions on the quality of the business. But they also start ginning out more information when people know you're going to talk to their customers. And then they also help dictate important customer tasks in the first few months when new information is learned on the calls. So, you know, you may end up quickly getting on a plane to go visit three customers where you didn't love how the conversation went. You may think about changing an account manager. You may learn something that is flawed in our operational processes that you keep hearing. So customer calls are are definitely important. And then the other one would mention that's important to do is I think a lot of people don't dissect growth enough. And so historical growth. And so You know, there are lots of different revenue bridges that exist out there and different philosophies and methodologies around them. But choosing a revenue bridge that you're comfortable with and then rolling it back five years to understand how growth has happened, meaning, you know, what growth came from same store sales, what growth came from new customer wins, what growth came from customer wins a year ago that's now ramping, what growth was lost due to, you know, customer churn you you want to you want to isolate those figure out patterns and then think forward on what's repeatable and i think our experience has been that many buyers don't properly dis- dissect how growth has transpired alex and therefore they end up misunderstanding the business's growth rate relative to the market growth rate and they make errors in revenue forecasting and then they even can end up with errors in staffing of business development or even operations functions because they don't understand how the business is growing and why it's growing that way and whether, you know, past is prologue. So those are really important analytical exercises to be doing. They require a very significant amount of data requests from the the owner, which, you know, they look like they're going to be in tears when you mention it. And sometimes it's not possible to go back five years, but that's kind of where you want to get to. Um, But you know, really dissecting the growth is the point there.
3: I think that's right. I think that's spot on. As far as negatives, like the no-nos, one might say, Alex. Now we'll get to a little more negative town. I think I think I'll just do one since we kind of already covered a little bit earlier around like don't buy too fast and don't buy too big, just because the challenges associated with those. And the one I would say is. And it's, it's a little easier when you're doing both times, but I would say when you're searching, it's even more, it's painful no matter what, but it's even more painful for my fellow searchers out there trying to land their first deal is getting in so deep, you lose the ability to walk away. And so, you know, there's, there's been some very trying moments for Tom and I, of of, you know, what spending, spending a life, spending what it felt like a life looking at a company and then seeing something and being like, this is no, no bueno. You know that night turned into a lot of vino and a lot of depression to get back on the horse the next day. But you know there's there's a great story of of past life and more in that background screen world where where Tom and I spent weeks flying out to a really ungodly part of our country in the middle of winter and being in sub-zero temperatures for weeks, eating food that wasn't so great So look at this company that had a lot of lot of lot of lot of, lot of jazz around it from you know from from the auction perspective. And it was a really great price. And we knew there was a ton of synergies. And we were easily able to articulate those. But as we dove in, going back to some of Tom's conversations around really analyzing revenue, we determined that at least 10 or 15% of that revenue was DOA within the first three months of closing. And so the impact of synergy is, okay, well, would you still buy it? Maybe. However, what is that doing to your overall growth rate as a parent company? And this was a big company. It was $50 million in revenue. It wasn't bolt on for, you know, in, the, in the old days. And it was painful to sit there and, and come back together, Tom and I, and say, you know what? This is not good for the overall business, especially after blood, sweat, and tears going into that business and spending a tremendous amount of time and creating, forging strong relationships with the management team, getting it early, doing all the things that we do. And you get to the finish line, you're like, wait a second, this is not good for a business regardless of the price. Even though we're going to make a ton of money in synergies, it's going to hurt the overall macro company, our growth rate, morale, the culture, everything, because they're going to lose 15% of their clients. And the funny story with that is, is you know, a year later, and in in, in in you know our, our background trading company's got new owners, and Tom and I fly out to go look at the our, our biggest competitor in the space who bought that company. And so we're going through a deck, you know, I mean, looking at this company and going through their sim, and we're seeing this big manager meeting. On every slide, there was an asterisk for the acquisition because they did it and they lost 25% of the client base. And so Tom and I might have undershot that by saying 50, maybe we would have done a little better than them. But, but they lost 20, 25% of the business and they had, a, they had a pro forma, all their data on that acquisition and it showed the damage to that parent company. So it might have been one of the best deals we did and it was one we didn't do. And so I think the ability to walk away even when you're so deep is an important piece of discipline one must have in MA.
2: Yeah, that's huge. And and that was after months, ultimately months of work walking away. And it's never easy. I've named two other things on no no's. I think people make a huge flaw and it's I think it's human nature because they're trying to forge a relationship with a business owner and They also want to avoid difficult conversations, but assuming that a current owner can stay with the business is a huge flaw. It almost never works. We saw one time this work out of say, you know, 11 or 12 transactions we completed together. And there were very special circumstances around that person's personality and the role, the the future role they took on that made it work. So that's one out of 12 say, they just don't work. if you're running a business, and often the founder, you know how likely are you to 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 be able to switch into a gear where you have, you know, new bosses in close proximity. You know, it's your baby. You've run it like you have, like the way you wanted for 10 or 20 years. And even worse, it's very harmful to employees. So employees often are getting two different set can end up with two different sets of direction. And you know some people say, oh, we're just gonna keep the, the, uh, the founder, we're just gonna keep her or him for a year. That's usually a year that's lost because there was confusion, there was higher anxiety, there was greater opportunity for defect, and sometimes two bosses in the room and additionally lost huge opportunity cost, spending time remediating issues that come from an owner still in the business. So, we have strong opinions on this. I'm sure there are other folks out there who've had successful partnerships with with founders, but the the takeaway really is that it's it's rare that it works. And so so try to plan accordingly and have the difficult conversations up front. That doesn't mean you can't have a owner roll over equity in the business. And sometimes certain owners could go on the board of a business, but a an operational role below to a search fund CEO is very challenging. The the other one I'd mention is we, you know, we think a lot of people going out to buy small to medium sized businesses, ignore customer concentration or they minimize customer concentration at their peril. So, you know, we have a rule for small businesses, call it, you know, 10 to 15 million of revenue or below where you have to meet the rule of eight, meaning that the top eight customers can't be more than 50% of your revenue. For mid-sized businesses, you know, maybe we take that up to, uh, say, a rule of 15. You know, your, 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 your top 15 customers shouldn't be more than 50% of your revenue. You know, businesses we bought, especially the platform businesses like a Morningside, you know, they had 30 or 40, it took 30 or 40 customers to get to 50% of your revenue. So why is that important? Well, let's, frankly, lets you sleep at night. And if you're gonna run this business for five or 10 years, it's good to have sleep during that period. So these, some things are outside of your control with these customers. Some, many things are within your control, but, 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 you know, buying a business where the customers have too much power over you to basically effectively, in some cases, ruin outcomes is 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 and, and to, to, to be to know that upfront, you know, is is tough. So we've definitely walked away from a ton of deals, including translation deals, where and you walk away early in those cases because you're gonna find out quite early, Alex, you know, customer even on a no names basis. Um, it's just a rule we're unwilling to violate. It makes life so much harder. A lot of those businesses with a large customer, they customize a lot of their operations and processes around that customer. It's a mess. Too much focuses on that customer. Of course, they can bounce and leave and churn, you know, churn out and, and then you're fighting fires. So nothing better than a business with tons of small to mid-sized customers. And we were fortunate to have that in background checks and translation. And it's really become part of, part of our, you know, criterion that we look for.
3: That's so well said, Tommy. I mean think about managing a business with twenty five percent in one client, which you see a lot in small businesses, your your business sees or fails on that one client. So to Tom's point, like you're literally building you're making business decisions not for the benefit of the company, you're making benefit of one customer. Right. And that that becomes very, very challenging to be successful.
2: It's one of the first questions we ask, Alex, you know, when you even when you're not under NDA, you know, you know, how much revenue do you have? How fast have you been growing the last few years on a percentage basis and and what are your what are your top 8 as a top 8 or 10 as a as a percentage of your total revenue and and it's amazing how many people don't seem to care about that or they ask it but they sort of are willing to accept whatever answer is given except when it's one customer's 50% of the revenue. We saw a lot of those businesses too but but people don't people don't think of it as um as quite the the risk and that that we do I think.
0: Yeah, those are your questions. So when you've looked at a deal and you think that there's a couple of synergies or maybe there's a lot of synergies that you can have with bringing this company in. Once you've acquired that company, how do you begin truly like trying to implement those synergies and just all that change management that happens when you're bringing a, a new team into a your current team? How do you plan out that process?
3: So that's a great question. And I think it's, um, it's obviously, we spent a lot of time thinking about how we analyze a business and we choose a business, but you know, obviously the next part is how do you execute on that business? And so, I think first and foremost, to start that conversation, M&A is change management. That's, and, and, and integration is change management. And so anyone thinks that, again, going back to processes or activities are completely wrong. M&A is completely 100% about change management. And so if you go in with that mindset and you keep an open mind around that, then you're starting, you're starting off much better than most, right? So there's a lot of data out there that says, you know, 70% of acquisitions fail to meet their goals. And again, not going to worry, because Sam and I will be back in the horse soon enough. You know, we, we met 100% of all the deal books we've ever done together. We've kept all the right employees and we've built out, we found the gems. And so, again, I would say some of that's luck, but I would say a lot of that was picking the right company up front. But I would say a good chunk of that also is integrating the company properly. So without, without going back to what day one means and, and really going over and above on that day, Again, having one chance at a first impression and focusing on reducing client and employee anxiety. We plan that for weeks. But the next piece is thinking about integration as a change management project. With that, when people start getting into like a merger of equals, that's always a mistake. There's always an, acquirer, an acquire and acquiry, period. Now, as an acquirer, you need to be open-minded that they may have a process better than yours, they might have an EC member better than yours. They might have a product that gem that's better than yours. And if you go in close-minded thinking this is a script we're going to follow you're 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 setting yourself up for missing a huge opportunity secondly from that when thinking about you know the overall acquisition itself is just start thinking about how are we going to integrate this company and what are the team that we're building and so a lot of folks in m a will hire a bunch of folks that used to do what i did for a living and consulting Right. And say, okay, we're going to have five or five consultants come in and help us integrate this company. Those consultants don't know anything about your business. They don't know anything about the acquirer's business. So right off the bat, you're already setting yourself up for failure. So you're, you're going to leave the keys to the kingdom to folks that do not understand your business or the acquired business. And so Tom and I, as part of our, going to process was building a cross functional team made up of, of members from both the acquiree and the acquirer Like, so like the company being bought and the company buying. And so, and then cross-functional in nature. So the team would consist of a sales bucket, a, a member from both sides, an operational bucket, a finance bucket, and technology bucket, and so on and so forth. And that team development would be going back to how do we build a team with sergeants and not officers? So going back to getting in early, realizing who does what, spending time with even the founder and the owners, like who does what in their team, they'll be very open and honest about that conversation too. And you build a team of sergeants, mm-hmm. That are cross-functional in nature, and with that, and this is a big this is a big point to think about. Synergies should be log should be a log, not linear. And so when you think about a log curve, it kind of goes down and then up forever, versus a linear curve that kind of goes and then spikes and goes like you know more of like a kaizen kind of mentality. That doesn't work. The latter does not work. You need to be thinking about strategy upfront and execution um, post that. And so Tom and I have had many conversations and it, it takes about trust with your board. It takes trust with, you know, and when we were working at a background screening company, you know, the owner and the CEO there, but the first couple months of your acquisition team work should all be about strategy and planning. And so the upfront planning is everything when it comes to integration, measure twice, cut once is the mentality one has to have. And so if you go in and you're like, okay, in the first month, we're going to have these 10 synergies. We're going to make these 10 cuts. Like, what do you know about the business? What a mistake. You might be cutting a gem out or some knowledge base around a certain product or platform that no one in the business really understands. And maybe you still make that cut, but you make it three months later, six months in the rearview mirror, it doesn't matter whether you made a synergy cut in the first month or the third month. It literally has no impact except for some the minimis cash for those two months. And so, really thinking about Spending the time up front with that cross-functional team, listening, learning, planting seeds. So even, you, even though you might know the answer, you got to let, let them come to that answer. Because if they come to that answer, they own that outcome. And so helping the team by planting seeds versus directing, you know, you're facilitating versus leading is a big, big to do for, for, for the leader of the acquiring company. And so you set the culture, you set the standards. And so really embracing the change management concept, not rushing into make a cut in the first month and figuring out with the team how we're going to get the best of both worlds, where one plus one equals three is the real true key to integrating a company.
2: You know, Roland, who you put on those teams was was critical. I know you you spent a lot of time thinking about. I know you've mentioned the sergeants, but what about, you know, the types of personalities and, and individuals from our company and then the, the target company? I feel like that's also part of the secret sauce now.
3: Yeah, I think that's true. And I feel like, you know, there was times where we purposely chose like a, a sergeant, but they were kind of like a no-sayer, right? They, they were the person that was like, you know, in, in the office behind closed doors, they were the people kind of pushing people away from your strategy and your direction. And so it was, it's a risky move, but if you can get them on board and you know they're valuable for your company and you want to keep that person and you want to change them and you want to get them on the bus going the right direction, embracing that person and getting them to embrace your strategy, realizing that they have a seat at the table, all of a sudden will change their outlook on the company, change their outlook on the strategy you're moving forward. And so, you know, there's been numerous times, whether a person in technology or a person in sales, we had join a team that, you, that usually had a different direction in their mind based on the old founders mentality. But if you can win that person over, the people behind, all the naysayers that would go behind them are now on your team also. And so it's really winning that battle of emotions and change. And that, that, that was, that's what successful integration is all about. Because if you build a team of smart people that are energetic and have strong character, Execution is easy, right? And so everyone thinks execution is, like, is, is this complicated thing, but if you build the right team and you have the right plan in place and you spend the time upfront building a clear execution plan, like, that becomes an easy component of it. And so, and that's where like, you just have basic structure, like our m and meetings with our cross-functional team was non-negotiable. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to attend this meeting, but I have a, you know, I have a call or I have a meeting. No, this is non-negotiable. At the same time, the people that are running the core business, need to continue running the core business. And so the acquisition needs to complement and not distract the core business. And so when the people that are moonlighting on the M&A team need to be focused 100% on M&A while they're there, and the people that are not on the M&A team need to focus 100% of the time on the core business. And this what goes back to having breadth and depth in your organization so that you can have the ability to have people moonlight M&A, but the people that are not M&A, they, get, they might get an update. Like our easy, many of our easy members are not on our teams. And they would always be nervous. What's going on with the M&A? And we, Tom and I, we provide an update or we'd have our project manager come provide an update to the EC. But like the EC, you guys got to focus on the core business. That's what I need you to focus on. Because otherwise you will have a dip in your growth. You will have a dip in your overall client satisfaction. So how do you build a cross-functional team and not distract from the business? That's very, very important. And that's where the sergeants really come in, super handy. And I think as Tom said, finding a couple of naysayers and throwing them on the team, as long as you're helping manage that, could, be, could create a double win for you. Cause you're really going to gain the traction from a change management perspective. And again, again, there's some basic little things where like, we're having, you know, clear tracking, clear data. And so having a very clean deal book, having structured meetings, having a structured tracking sheet around your progress around different functions and giving the people the autonomy to come up with solutions themselves, knowing here's the goal is a very empower- powerful, powerful thing, right? You're really empowering your team, to be kind of like mini CEOs of, of the acquired integration. And people, by the end, as Tom knows, people fought to get on the M&A teams. Where you think, okay, not, that's a lot of extra work, but they got they saw the autonomy that came with it, they saw the power that came with it, and they wanted to be in charge of making decisions and strategy. And so, you know, in the end, it, it, it felt like extra work, but like people fought to get on the teams because they knew they were gonna learn something, they knew they were gonna better themselves, and learn about the entire company at a whole versus just the function they work in. And so I think it was a very powerful thing for Tom and I to really br- bring up the level of education and professionalism within our organization by doing M&A if you do it right.
2: Yeah, there's there's also, Alex, a, a bit of a virtuous cycle, I think, or, you know, virtuous after effects that come from having run successful M&A and, and being able to track it quantitatively. And that's that you can show lenders that process in the future. And one of the things that we did was we purchased most of our acquisitions only with debt, which may be surprising to some people. And it's not always possible, especially when you're talking about big acquisitions. But done right with a lender, you can really negotiate a credit agreement that gives you more credit upfront for unrealized synergies. So what do I mean there? Well, basically what you're getting in your credit agreement is language that allows for some level of unrealized synergies to be counted or annualized upfront. So some of those could be quite simple, like the departure of the owners of the former owners takes place on day one of the acquisition or within the first 30 days, but you get allowed the annualization, the rollback of the prior 12 months of those owners' salaries. Other buckets are more complicated where you're promising a series of actions with specific timelines and specific quantified cost savings, like say um, the the sunsetting of a technology platform or reductions in, in similar vendor purchases in your cost of goods sold. The key there is getting credit for when you take an action and achieve that synergy in a first month can I get a full rollback of 11 more months of that synergy? So sort of action taken equals synergy credit for the full 12 months. And, you know, lenders will want to see that you've done this in the past, that you have a real track, a high quality integration team, that you know what you're doing and that you have a real track record of a high quality integration process with proven results that, and that you met your deal book. But if you can bring to bear that process and and those facts, Early on when you're meeting with a lender and getting a credit agreement set up, it's very impressive to lenders. And obviously, there are huge advantages to to being able to do this. One for one, you don't over-equitize a business. You know, you can run these tuck-ins with debt financing, which obviously has significant, you know, returns, positive return impacts if you do it well. But also they let you keep your leverage levels, your combined leverage levels lower and your, your leverage levels more track to kind of r- your run rate trajectory. Meaning it's actually not representative of the business to only get one month of credit for departing owners, right? When you know they're, they're gone and 12 months of credit for those departing owners is far more in line with the actual trajectory of the go forward business. So anyway, your leverage levels get to come down faster or don't rise as fast say and then you don't over equitize the business but these these are nuanced discussions with lenders and again the the table gets set with showing what you've done in the past it's not just you're not going to get terms like this from just saying you're going to do it you got to show kind of a prior deal book or two introduce the team that does it explain the methodology and the process and then of course get the language right and that's a negotiation you know you're not going to get all this stuff rolled back. And there are even penalties. Lenders will penalize you. Say those synergies you got in the first month from a, a technology platform sunset don't materialize the next month Well, you're going to be penalized. So, you know, it's a give and take with lenders, but, but if you can establish that trust, there are enormous benefits for how you finance these deals.
3: <laughs> and selfishly, I, I one of the side benefits was like, when you're first, you know, even, each business was different, but like when you're cutting your teeth, on the, with a with a new lender, like the acquisition conversations are like hours and hours and hours and, and, and data requests and everything else, as if they're diligencing the whole thing. But you know, three or four deals in, they're like just a checkbox. Sure, okay, time and roll. You guys are good. All right, here's 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 some more money. Have fun, right? Like because it just like the, the stress goes away of worrying about funding because you have a proven track record and they trust you. And so I remember you had this background screening place. It was literally like a, I mean, I remember jumping on a call It was two minutes. Okay, fine you know, revenue, EBITDA synergies. Okay, we're good. Right. Versus the old days having to come into a meeting and put a suit on and spend, you know, a day with these folks trying to get money. And so it was just, it was just a a little side benefit that I always enjoyed as we, as we, as we became more credible and not wasting time.
0: What else do we need to cover in the synergies credit? That's, that's pretty interesting. Where, Where else could we go there in the last, like, you know, maybe four or five minutes more on that and then we can handle closing questions.
2: Well, I think, Roland, maybe, you know, one of the things that ties into this is, is would be helpful for you to discuss, you know, types of synergies and how, you know, folks love to think of the senior executives and and the easy ones that sometimes actually can can really hurt the business and don't focus on the hard ones like technology platforms and cogs.
3: Yeah, that's that's I mean, like. I would say, when, and this goes back to our conversation, Alex, around like, quote unquote, building the proper sauces making machine. And so, when you build an efficient back office and workflow, you have the ability to create cog synergies pretty much all the time. And again, that was a major component of our diligence. But, you know, we, we like to bucket our synergies, obviously, in a horizontal acquisition. And if you're talking vertical acquisition, you have more revenue synergies and so forth. But thinking back to the bolt on and the horizontals, you know, like we would always, we obviously you have, you'd have your cog synergies, which is kind of above the line and your sausage making, which is very, very important. And that's where real value is created. And Then obviously below the line, you have, we kind of split up our SGA in two buckets. One was more like kind of like fixed overhead stuff, whether it's technology expense, rent expense, you know, you know, insurance, basic things like that. And versus more of an employee SGA where, you know, that's going back to like, you know, getting rid of the founder and owner and so forth. And so, really diving in deep during diligence and classifying each of these buckets from a, from a synergy, from a cost perspective, was an exercise that you, you could almost never do enough of. And that also ties back to the, going back to strategizing with your team for the first three months. So, you're going to do all your prelim work and build your deal book before you close. But we had this rule of updating the deal book within 30 days of close. And the reason why we give ourselves that latitude, we never ended up changing the final number. But the number might shift a little bit going back to Tom's point. We might be like, hey, this, you know, lead software development guy, like we already have one, blah, 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 we're moving on. We don't need him. We'll put him in the synergy, you know, four months out after we send that platform. Well, it comes to be that platform is a gem and or a component of that platform. And this, you know, gentleman or, or 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 lady is the expert in said platform. And actually, they're a great cultural fit. So we need to keep that person. However, there we also found additional cost savings and that we didn't see during due diligence. And so we're going to shift that bucket. You know, put up 100 grand here and move 100 grand over here. So our total deal book number stayed the same, but we had a plan that was that made more sense and it was it was minor updates 30 days post close. And so really really carving up those buckets, Alex, and really having set goals with like how are we going to achieve those without super detail, but like how we're going to do those was important. For example, like we're going to need to sunset a platform. Well, during due diligence, you're going to say, okay, we're going to sunset this application. But like how are we going to do that is going to be figured out by your platform person, your product person, your salesperson. And so understanding what clients are on it, why they're on it. What, what what do we have to offer that's different or better, right? And so, in getting those questions happens with your organization team. But deciding we're only going to have one platform is should be paramount in the beginning of your assessment. So you're going to get either a synergy from the client from from the from the acquired company, or what we would coin as reverse synergies. So maybe we shut a platform down that we have. Maybe we there's an employee in our company that no is no longer there because the employee in their company is better. And the, having the ability to accept that is a very important part of being respectful of the acquired company and, and really believing in one plus one equals three. And so having an open mind when it comes to synergies is a very important thing, besides just classification and bucketing of yes. those synergies.
2: Yeah. And also people, I think that's what I said, Roland, I think there are many acquirers who do not prepare a detailed deal book before close. So you heard Roland say it gets adjusted, but I've seen so many acquirers, we've seen so many acquirers who, you know, just say, we'll do that after. And so that just takes enormous risk instead of asking the hard questions and, and forcing the the difficult data requests that need to come. And, and and then the the many questions that come after that when the data doesn't make sense, and it rarely does to start with, especially if it's small companies, that stuff should work be worked out, you know, well before closing. And then it's also interesting how many acquirers, you know, want to just focus on the classic, like, oh, these are your five senior people. You know, we don't need them because we have great people and they, you know, can destroy the culture and great leadership at at that company, just focusing on pay levels rather than the nitty-gritty of what Roland said of, no, no, let's go look at COGS and think about how to increase our gross margin on an overall basis by putting their volume through our sausage-making machine. Well, let's also go be thoughtful about platforms. I mean, as you know, Alex, so many acquirers are, some for some reason, content to run two, three, or four platforms which destroys value in their business and makes everything more complicated. So there, there are a lot of folks that, especially strategic acquirers, that gravitate to kind of simplistic synergies and not Aren't ready to roll up their sleeves and 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 really you know go for synergies that are harder and they take longer, but they build a much better company that is is far more unified in the long term.
3: And I think that's so well said. And I think the other thing that people do, which is like a huge no no when it comes to modeling out synergies and thinking about it, when you know obviously most sellers are going to sell some kind of hockey stick growth, and so folks that that have the revenue. They're like modeling revenue growth higher than the LTM period, or the last, or even the period before that, like is insane. So like it's, it's absolutely insane, and it's it, you're faking yourself into 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 a number that's just not going to materialize, especially when the company is going through an acquisition. i would say more times than not, Tom and I, never mind not believe their forecast haircut their LTM growth, right, and really spent a lot of time digging into that. And so you want to count on some exponential growth of the acquire again. At the same time, I would say that every single deal we did, I, I don't maybe it could be one different, but I would say pretty much every single deal we did, our client retention was stronger on the acquired business than our core business, which, which sounds odd and, and doesn't even make sense to most people when you say it. But it's because the amount of attention that our account managers, our sales folks, are yeah, even our back office folks spent on those clients because you're so focused and so dedicated to making sure those clients are comfortable and happy and safe. And, and you have all these touchback loops that are part of our process to make sure that things are going well and, that, and they like what they're seeing and so forth. So the, the amount of touches with the acquired clients is actually greater than our core business. So it, it's, it's actually, it does make sense that our retention was generally stronger with, with the acquired company. Again, we wouldn't model something like that, but you'd model going back to history, but going back to like thinking about revenue growth, like, you know, for all the folks out there listening, like do not model some hockey stick growth as, as part of your your value creation for, for this acquisition because you're setting yourself up most likely for disappointment. And so when you start thinking about synergies on horizontals, you really gotta be thinking about those buckets that we articulated and not and get off just the SGA leaders that are salary-based spend the time thinking about platform integration, spend the time thinking about Saja's making. And And if you did a good job with your back office first, generally speaking, when you buy a company, you're going to have a higher gross margin. And so, especially because they're smaller, they're less scaled. And so you should get synergies from that first and foremost. And that should be your number one focus to get going.
0: Yeah. I'd love to keep going and go for another hour, but unfortunately we're out of time. And so we'll, we'll skip closing questions, but I'm glad we did. Cause there was, there was so much more interesting stuff that we were able to cover with this extra time. So thank you both for sharing your time today. This has been really awesome. This has been one of the more, most fun episodes I've done so far. So thank you both for, for taking a part of that. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Put in Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. And if you want to learn more about The Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better.